I know I have to go now. Came back for me. I like you. Here, I belong out there. You belong here. It's too strange here. It doesn't move right. Mom said that it's only land sickness. We're all feeling it. It'll go away soon. It's more than that. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 163 and 164, which begin with preparations for the Mariner's departure and end with Enola running away down the beach. The first shot that we get in this week's clip is a catamaran boat sitting beneath some trees by the beach. Now, we've talked a lot about catamarans over the course of this movie because the Mariner sailed a trimaran through most of it. We were a big fan of the trimaran. Yeah. And out of curiosity, I looked up the Wikipedia page for catamarans and that style of boat was invented by what Wikipedia calls the Austronesian people, also referred to as the Austronesian speaking peoples, which are a large group of various peoples in Taiwan Maritime, Southeast Asia, Oceania, and Madagascar that speak the Austronesian languages. It makes sense that that boat style would get pulled up to Tibet because Tibetans don't really have a boat style. Right. They would have to borrow it from somebody else. The word catamaran is derived from the Tamil word katumaram, which means logs bound together. However, the original word did not refer to the double-hulled boats at all, but to a type of single-hulled craft made of three to seven tree hunks lashed together. And then the term evolved in English usage to only refer to those double-hulled boats. The catamaran style was an early technology of the Austronesian people. Early researchers like Hein Goldern in 1932 and Hornell in 1943 once believed that catamarans evolved from outrigger canoes, but modern authors specializing in Austronesian culture like Doran in 1981 and Mahdi in 1988 now believe it to be the opposite, that it was a separate thing. Okay, that they were completely separate. Yeah. Okay. But I like that the catamaran boat is one of those things that you find from Indonesia, India, the Pacific Islands in general. And so geographically speaking, it's very close to Nepal. And that does support the idea that we talked about last week where... The waters are rising, and people are like, all right, we know where the highest land is. Let's go there. So the people who are closest to that are the people from that part of the world. Greater India, Indonesia, Australia, it would have been a quicker journey for them and easier for the everyday, economically leveled people, the poor and the middle class. (laughs) Of their respective economies to make it there. Whereas for Americans, really only the rich people could have gone there. It's such a long journey that the rich ones got there. (laughs) What comes to mind is an episode of the Grand Tour on Amazon where they went to Vietnam. 
and they took these boats through so many floating villages mm-hmm. and how there are cultures where geography dictates that their city is on the water. And it's those type of people that would most likely more easily adjust to a flooding system. Sure, their permanent buildings would be flooded and destroyed, but they're so used to living close to water that they could adapt, some would say quickly, I would hope. (laughs) There's other places, I think there are coastal African cities that have a lot of floating structures. There's a lot of Dutch peoples, because most of that country is below the waterline, who have canals and houseboats and things like that. People like that would adapt quickly to a floating world. Yes. It's the same sort of thing that you were just saying, that those folks would instantly know where Everest is, and they would just sail towards it. So I like that there's that carryover as we're looking at this catamaran boat sitting under the trees. I have a tiny confession to make. We've been using the word trimaran so much during this movie for obvious reasons that when I see a catamaran, I struggle to remember the right word. (laughs) Like, I know it's not a trimaran because there's only two and not three, but the word's no longer readily available in my brain. It has been replaced with trimaran. Do you want to call it a bimaran? Well, I do now. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't get ridiculous and try and add a fourth hull. I don't want to try and... Yeah, is it a quatramaran or is it a bicatamaran? Who knows? Formaran? Whatever it is, it's too much. I don't like it. At know what your point, limits, people. At, at what point? At what point does man's hubris go too far? I think all of Waterworld is the point at which man's hubris has gone too far. That's <laughs> how we got here. One hull, good. Two hull, better. Three hull, best. Four hull, too far. Too far. <laughs> we cut from the catamaran to Helen and Gregor and all of them standing by looking at the Mariner. They have a sudden understanding of what he is going to do. There is something in the book that we miss here, and that is a depiction of the Mariner on his own dragging the boat towards the water, and Helen approaches him, and he says... I'm not staying, I need to go. And Helen stops him and says, with all that you've done, vis-a-vis saving Enola, helping them get to dry land, all that other stuff, at least let us help you prepare to leave. I like that. I like the sentiment that you deserve this. Mm -hmm. I like the idea put forth by that, that not only does he deserve their help as a thank you, he deserves to leave, yeah. be happy, and go do his own thing. Helen understands that the Mariner does not belong on land. This is not his environment. This is not where he wants to be. And she's not going to try to persuade him to stay. Helen has understood at long last that the Mariner is going to Marin, and she can't change him. Cutting back real quick to the intimacy scenes... Something that I liked about those scenes, I think more in the book than was presented in the movie, is that it was portrayed not as a, oh, we're falling in love and we're going to commit to each other and we're going to show that commitment by having sex. That's not what it was. It was a, you are sad and lonely, I am sad and lonely, let's be sad and lonely together. And that supports this sentiment from Helen now of, 
you deserve happiness. Let me help you be happy somewhere else. Yeah. Their relationship is not one of commitment. It was one of being there for each other when they needed each other. And that's coming to an end now. Speaking on the intimacy scenes, the book made it clear that that physical intimacy that was something that Helen needed that the Mariner could provide. And I never got the sense in the book that the Mariner necessarily reciprocated those physical intimacies. Now, granted, in the book, you're not going to have your star, Kevin Costner, agree that his character that he's portraying is going to be a bottom. He is not going to allow Helen to be the dominant sexual force in a coupling. And therefore, in the movie, you saw him wrap his arm around her and lower her down to the deck so that he could be on top. Yeah. I don't believe that that is something the Mariner would do. The Mariner would have to be pushed back onto his back so that Helen could do her thing. Based on my understanding of the character, that's who I believe would be the top and the bottom in that situation. I agree. I do not know where to go from there. I was not prepared to have a top and bottom conversation. The next thing we see in the clip is the catamaran dragged out onto the beach. Gregor the Enforcer and Helen have this little back and forth path that they're walking as they are loading supplies onto the boat. He's got water, he's got plants, he's got, I'm assuming, rope and things like that. While the adults are hard at work, Enola is sitting off to the side on a piece of driftwood holding her silver music box and the Mariner is approaching her. In a society of five people... Children should be working. <laughs> she is perfectly capable of carrying things back and forth. But she is allowed to sit there and mope. Enola is the one person of this group that does not understand why the Mariner has to leave. I love this fact. I really, really appreciate the fact that the adults understand, don't argue, and help. Mm-hmm. It's a very mature handling of... One fifth of your society deciding to leave. And they're like, okay, we're going to help you. Mm-hmm. And then there's Enola, who she's a child. So, of course, she's going to mope when her friend decides to leave. Yeah. That's a very childlike thing to do. So, in that sense, I'm okay with it. I'm just, I'm annoyed because it's Enola and she's just got to mope about it. If Enola was your child, you would never let her sit idly side while other people were doing work. No, not if there's only five people and she's capable. No, grab something. I want to dive into the book before we talk about the scene from the clip because it's largely the same. There are a few differences. So I want to cover the book first and then we'll get into the movie. Parading onto the beach with various supplies they'd gathered came Helen Gregor and the Enforcer. The Mariner had lived alone for longer than he could remember He was surprised by the feeling of warmth these people spawned in him. But Enola was not helping. She was sitting on a log, staring out to sea, her expression morose. It was as close to pouting as he had ever seen her come. He patted across the sand to her and said, For the first time in your life, you have nothing to say? She said nothing, didn't look at him. Sing that song of yours, he said. You hate that song. I like it when you sing it. She still didn't look up at him, so he knelt down beside her, closer. Enola, he touched her arm. I have to go now. Now she looked at him, and the big blue eyes were clouded with tears. But you came back for me. Of course I did, he said. You're my friend. And she threw herself in his arms, and the tears flowed. Why? Why are you leaving us? He patted her back. Because I don't belong here. He eased her away. 
looked at her hard, but gently. With his head, he gestured toward the sea. I belong out there. You belong here. No, he said softly. It's too strange here. It doesn't move under my feet. The child's voice was nearly desperate. Helen says it's just land sickness. It'll go away soon. The emotion that passed through him in a wave was worse than the nausea. How strange, how terrible, how wonderful. For me, it's more than that, he said. The child's lower lip trembled. I I can't change your mind, can I? No. She stood and revealed something she'd had tucked behind her back. It was a small wooden box with odd, lovely carvings. She popped open the lid and music played. A tune. Her tune. Take this gift, she said, and think of me. Then she kissed him and ran away in tears towards the village. The mariner made his way to the little boat where Helen was waiting. You're right, that is very close to what happens in the movie, and still I think it's better. (laughs) (laughs) Specifically that the music box is small, something she can hide behind her back, she can hold in one hand, whereas in the movie it's this big silver thing. It's rather sizable, yes. Yeah, she can like barely hold it in her lap. (laughs) And so it makes that gesture of her giving it to the mariner feel awkward instead of a lovely moment where she gives him a gift to remember her by. Mm -hmm. I have to assume that the moment in the book that here where she opens the music box and lets him hear the tune was kept out of the movie because in the book, he obviously says, let me hear you sing again, because that's something that she loved to do and it always annoyed him. And so that was a way of him saying, this is a thing that you always forced on me. Let's hear it again. And they could go back and forth and a little inside joke there, I guess, but The heart and soul of this conversation is what we see here in the movie where the Mariner says, hey, I'm heading out. I'm leaving. Time to say goodbye. And Enola just doesn't get it because why would he go through all the trouble of saving her from the smokers just to leave her behind? It doesn't make sense to her child brain. Right. To her, because they're friends, because he risked himself for her, they should now live together they should now live in the same society together Mm -hmm. and be together that's what you do because that's what the atoll is is it's people who work together for each other's survival living together so that's what she knows in her experience at the atoll there are plenty of people who come and go but those people rarely make an impact on her life they're just people who come and go But now there's someone who has transitioned from a person who comes and goes into somebody stable. And that's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to stay. I wonder if Enola has heaped a surrogate father role onto the Mariner. If Helen is her mother, then the Mariner has filled this whole, are you my daddy sort of thing. Oh, for sure. For sure. I'm remembering back to the moment when... And I think this is the moment he kind of softened on her when Helen gave him the picture that she drew. And it was the three of them in a very family pose. Yeah. Mother and father on either side of the child. And that was a turning point for him. So, yeah, he is her father figure. Mm. Now, what do you think of the difference between the book and the movie where Enola's protest of you came back to save me and the Mariner's reply in the book you're my friend in the movie, I like you. I think the you're my friend is better over the course of the story because that idea of Enola calling the Mariner her friend is a thing that could pay off here as a set of three. 
Helen says to the Mariner, Enola said you're her friend. The Mariner says to the Deacon, she's my friend. And then the Mariner would then, for the third time, look at Enola and say, you are my friend. I love that very, very much. I love the set of three. That's always very pleasing. It also shows an arc, a journey that the Mariner is going on, mostly about his ability to have a friend. Yeah. And his ability to tell that friend that they are his friend. And that shows a lot of growth Mm -hmm. on his part, which I think is kind of his main arc is his ability to have a friend, his ability to care about a person. Yes, he does show varying levels of affection towards the three adults who are there with him. Most of his affection is for Enola. Yeah. All this talk about character progression and arcs, it makes me think about Enola's journey over the course of this movie. I don't necessarily believe that Enola changes over the course of this film. I don't think she has an arc. I agree. I don't think she has an arc either. It's one of those things that lends credence to the why does Enola need to be a character in the first place. Right. She is essentially a MacGuffin. She's an object, and that sucks. That really sucks. I don't want to call any person an object, let alone a woman, but she is objectified through this whole movie. And part of that objectification is part of the plot, the way that the deacon objectifies her. I think that's important that he does so because he's the bad guy. Mm -hmm. Gregor certainly objectifies her. Oh, yeah. Gregor sees her as a map. Yeah. Um, Constantly. Does he even ever treat her like a person instead of just a map? Not, not much. As, not as much as Helen does. Enola was put there because she needs to be the one thing that both the Mariner and Helen care about. And the best way to do that is to make it a child. Well, if that's the case, I wish they just kind of skipped her and just figured out a more useful <laughs> a more useful way to get them to care about each other. I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. I just don't think Enola is a necessary part of the plot. <laughs> And like Rob Lumley said, oh, several weeks ago now, that it's odd to have a child in a movie that's not geared towards children Mm -hmm. when the individual, that character, does not need to be a child. You know what? It's an odd choice. Maybe that's why they had Enola be a child. Not to try and pull in the younger audience, but because this movie is geared towards adults, and adults typically care for children. I love how you said typically because I don't like Enola. Typically, adults will look at a child in a situation and say, oh yes, I, an adult, most adults are parents or familial relationship to children in such a way. And so they look at these kids and say, oh, these kids are something that needs to be protected. That is very true. And even me, like I'm not a big fan of kids in general. I like the kids who are in my family and friend circles. Like, I dislike children. Just not a big fan. Not a big fan of Enola as a character. But if I were in the Mariner's position where I come across a child who is in danger, who needs to be saved over and over again, who needs to be cared for, I would probably do it. Because that's part of our species. And part of every species. We protect our young. Mm -hmm. Because part of being a thing that is alive is wanting to pass down our genetic information. Yep. And that's what children are. They are passed down genetic information. 
What kind of arc could Enola have had as a character? I think she could have understood the Mariner better, which is exactly what she doesn't do in this scene. The Mariner spends time getting to know Enola, like through her drawings and whatnot. What does Enola know about the Mariner? Does she even really understand his genetic differences? I don't think so. It's hard to say. So I think a good arc would be for her to learn about somebody who is different than herself and understand what that means. That means that if you find dry land, he's not going to want to live there. You hit the nail right on the head for the best possible arc for Enola because it's something that can be conveyed simply. At the beginning of the movie, Enola is isolated and naive. She doesn't understand a lot about people to say nothing of outsiders. And then by the end of the movie, because of her time with the Mariner, because of her time with the Smokers, now she understands that people are different than her and can have other ways of looking. You can have that realization portrayed in a conversation like this, showing maybe at the beginning of the movie a short scene between Helen and Nola on the atoll, maybe on the morning of the Mariner's execution. They had that short shot of the two of them waking up in the houseboat. And you could have had a short conversation between Helen and Enola, where Enola is expressing all of this naivete about, well, why are these people doing this? Why don't they see this my way? You know, why doesn't everybody see things my way? And then here at the end of the movie, you can have Enola say, based on my experiences, on the adventures that I've encountered, over the last however long it's been, I now understand that people are different and they have different needs. That could have been excellent. And she still could have been sad. Of course she's going to be sad Mm -hmm. that he's leaving. And she could express that sadness and give him a gift to remember her by. But she's so petulant about not getting her way that he's staying that it reinforces how I feel about Enola. I am reminded, oh, right. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not a fan. When she could have said, I am sad that you're leaving because you are my friend and I'm grateful that you saved my life and I understand that this is not a place for you and I hope you come visit us. And I love you. Goodbye. Enola doesn't get the opportunity to say too much in this scene. She has four lines. A lot of them are protests, explanations, questions, that sort of thing. Yeah. The exchange that they have in the book, I think, is much more appropriate. Because here it's just, I gotta go. But you shouldn't go. You came back for me. I like you. Why are you leaving? I don't belong here. And she says, no, you do belong here. And he says, no, it doesn't feel right. And she's like, ah, it's just land sickness. And he's like, ah, it's more than that. And that's it. That's the end of the conversation. He just says, it's more than that. No further interaction in the clip. It's very lacking compared to what Max Allen Collins hastily scribbled down at the end of the novelization so that he could move on to the next project and get paid. (laughs) I think there was also perhaps a missed opportunity for the Mariner to say something perhaps beautiful about the ocean. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't belong here. I belong out there where yada, 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 something lovely about the way he feels about the ocean that he doesn't feel about the land. It's an opportunity for him to say something along the lines of the song in Beauty and the Beast where Belle is singing the reprise 
to the song about the town. It's later on after the town scene. She's up on the hillside. This is after her father has been attacked by wolves and the horse is about to show up. But she's singing to the wind about how she wants adventure in the great wide somewhere. And like, that's what the mariner needs to say here. He cannot be contained to this island. It's not his natural habitat. And he's giving Enola the opportunity to say, I understand that you are different. And we needed some sort of confirmation that even if he's not there on the island, it does not diminish their friendship. That's what she needs to hear in this instance, and it is not said. That's a really good point. Harkening back to what I was saying before, she's familiar with the drifter concept of people coming and going all the time, and those are just like blank faces in her life. Mm -hmm. And just because he is by nature a drifter, and he's going to leave and perhaps come back and leave and come back and leave, that doesn't change their relationship and how they feel about each other. Mm -hmm. They are friends no matter where on the planet they are. And yeah, that's a lesson that she needs to learn. I'm really not a fan of how this conversation concludes of her running away. Yeah, she shoves the music box into his hands, says nothing about it, and then books it. Yeah, I feel like this conversation should have come to some sort of resolution where she's no longer as upset. That they understand each other in a different way than the beginning of the conversation. Otherwise, what was the point of the conversation? But by the end... It's mixed. She seems to accept his leaving because she gives him a gift to remember her by, but then she still runs away with more pouting. Mm -hmm. So it's very mixed, and I'm not really sure really how she's feeling anymore. I don't know. And this conversation should have some sort of solid resolution to it. Getting away from the heavy stuff, you mentioned that you were not the biggest fan of Enola's (laughs) hat. No, we get some really good up-close looks at the hat in this two minutes, which is excellent. It is the standard sections of material sewn together with pretty wide gaps on it. Now, we get a good look at it. It's clearly fish skin, but its translucence makes it look like, you know, when lizards and amphibians shed their skin? Uh That's what it looks like. But they wouldn't have access to that sort of material. Like, they don't have amphibians. I don't know where this hat came from in the first place. Amphibians, like, they do, you know, they're they're water-going creatures as well as land creatures. She didn't have this hat before they got to the village. It's just so ugly. This hat came from probably a dead body. Oh, no, 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 no. She was wearing this hat on the balloon. She was? She's been wearing this hat for a while. What? She's been wearing this hat for a while. I I know because I hate it. Hate this hat. It's so ugly. So this hat was on the balloon? Yes, and I'm pretty sure she was wearing this hat on the atoll. I'm pretty sure this is like her hat. What? I don't believe it. I don't want to go back and check. (laughs) She was definitely, for sure, wearing it on the balloon. I have been convinced for the last 20 some odd years that she found this hat in the huts. Well, that would make more sense because it really does look like shed snakeskin. It's just ugly and I don't like it. I'm not going to go back all the way to the atoll to see if she's wearing it there. No, I think it's enough to go back to the balloon. Yeah. And see if she's wearing it there. The scene where they wake up in the morning and they're like leaning over the edge because the seagull and then the mountains. Scrubbing through minute 80. Yep, she's wearing it on the balloon. I didn't notice, but there it is. Yep. Right front and center. (sighs) It reminds me of those 
winter hats with the flaps Mm -hmm. that can be either pulled up or pulled down under the chin or up the side of the head. And most of the time they're pulled up over the side of the head. Yeah. And they're like super duper warm winter hats. It reminds me of that. But what is it accomplishing? It's like a bonnet. Yeah. And you're right. Bonnets don't really accomplish anything. I mean, they protect hair from the wind. But her hair's not, like, done. It doesn't need to be protected. Yep. Bonnets also signify things in culture about whether you're married or not in some cultures. But that also doesn't count because she's an unmarried child. So I don't know why she's wearing a bonnet. Yeah, neither do I. Yep. Suffice it to say, we have no idea what it's made out of. I mean, it's got to be fish skin. But it is dumb looking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And production-wise... I'm curious what Tina Majorino thought about wearing this hat. I'm curious about the person who made the decision to create the hat and then to make her wear it. I'm curious about the editor who sat in the booth and was okay with these up-close pictures of this hat. (laughs) Well, thankfully, for this week at least, Enola runs away taking her awful hat with her. The Mariner is left to wander back towards his catamaran, holding the music box in his hands. And this is where the clip cuts off. We're going to put a pin in this. Come back next week. The Mariner will bid farewell to Gregor and the Enforcer, and Helen will try to understand why he feels the need to leave. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tuohy, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 82. We'll see you next time.